you, Brian, for that. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're taking verses 1 through 9. Now, this is a, a fundamental change in the book. Paul is kind of shifting gears. He's kind of veering left from where we were in the first six chapters. In the first six chapters, Paul is directly calling out the sins of the church at Corinth. And if you remember, what are the two really big ones? The two really big sins that were dividing the church. Oops. What were they? The sin of division because of their own fleshliness. They were worldly, they were very fleshly, and they brought the world into the church. And so they brought human philosophy into the church, and they brought their own view of human leadership into the church. And both of those things began to separate and divide people within the body. And then he moves from the sin of division to the next sin, chapters 5 and chapter 6. Do you remember what that one was? Sexual immorality, sexual deviation. Not only were they divided as a body, but they were also living in sexual immorality. Chapter 5, there was the, this disgusting act of a man who took his father's wife. And it looked to be a relationship that was present within the church and even praised and, and uh, you know, gloated about. And Paul rebukes that. There were also men in the church who were going and sleeping with the temple priestesses that were there from the temple of Aphrodite. So you had all this sexual immorality and you had all this division within the body. Now in chapter 7 through 11, he switches gears and he goes from telling them what they're doing wrong and then begins to answer their questions. Would you mind closing the, the pastor's door for me, please? Thank you. He goes and he begins to now uh, uh, answer some of the questions that the Corinthian church has. And so let's look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Now Paul is here going to take on questions that the Corinthian church had. Now it, this book is 1 Corinthians but it's not the actual first letter Paul writes to the Corinthian church. So he goes there in Acts 18 and he plants the church. And how long is he staying there in Corinth? How long is he the pastor there for? You got it? What is it? 18 months. He's there for a year and a half and he's planting the foundation of the church and then he leaves. And Paul then writes his first letter to the Corinthians, which we as a church do not possess. We don't have the record of it, but we know that he wrote it because he mentions it in this book. So he writes to the church and he's obviously teaching them about certain things. Now, the Corinthians then in chapter one, Chloe and her friends write a letter back and they're telling Paul about all the sins in the church and then they begin to ask questions about Paul's original letter. There were things that he wrote in there that, that struck the Corinthians they didn't quite grasp. And so in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, Paul addresses some of the Q&As. And the first topic is the area of singleness and marriage. And so in chapter 7, Paul begins to address what it's like to be a Christian single and a Christian married person. And so chapter 7 deals with that. And I believe I have the slides up as well. And in chapter 8, 9, and 10, it deals with things offered to idols. The Corinthians, they were in a, an 
a polytheistic religion. There were many, many, many gods. And so they worshiped all these gods. If you've heard of Greek mythology and, and Roman mythology, all the different gods and goddesses that the men and women would sacrifice and offer to. Well, that brought up a lot of questions when Paul is talking about how there's one true God. So then they start asking questions. Well, what about things offered to idols? And then we get into chapter 11, and Paul begins to address two other topics. One is the, the role of male and female within the body of Christ. It was so taboo when Paul says homosexuality is wrong, effeminism is wrong, act like men. Because in Greece and in the Roman Empire, there was a blending of genders. There was the, this blending, this gender fluidity that was going around. And so Paul corrects them with the idea of Christian order. In 11 and verse 2, he says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So Paul has obviously received their letter. In that letter, they were praising him and thanking him. And then he begins to teach them about a topic that they had a misunderstanding about. He says in verse three, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is at the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. So there's a Christian order that even falls within the family unit. And then Paul addresses the last issue or one of the last concerns that the Corinthians had, and it dealt with communion. Remember, there were all these different rites and different religious um, acts that the Corinthians would do in Corinth and throughout Rome. Now they come into the church and there's only two religious rites. One is baptism and what's the other one? Communion. And so they were uh, having communion in an inappropriate way. So Paul then begins to call them out. And he says uh, there in verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and the one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So they had a, a question and there were some error when it came to communion. And Paul then addresses that. And now the last sentence in chapter 11, Paul writes this. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. In other words, the other questions and the other concerns that you've brought up from my letter, I'm going to deal with them face-to-face -face and in person. But the major things were singleness and marriage, things offered to idols, Christian order, and communion. So Paul in chapter 7, he spends an entire chapter on marriage and being single as a Christian person. And this is super, super important because in Rome, there was so much going on. And we're going to see as we lay the context for this chapter, how much confusion the church really had. Do you know how many forms of marriage there were in Rome? How many types of marriages were, was in the Roman Greco world? Anybody know? Four. 
there were four types of Roman Greco marriage. And then on top of that, they had a redefinition of marriage where males and males can get married together. Then on top of that, they had a completely different view of singleness. Some in the Roman Greco world elevated it and others diminished it. So you had all these different things going on. So the first type of Roman marriage was known as the contu bernium. Contu bernium in Latin literally means to uh, have a tent companion. And I I think there it is. I have the slide for you. It means to have a tent companion. And this was the first form of marriage within the Roman Greco world. And it dealt with the slaves. Now, in the Roman Empire, there was anywhere between 20 to 40% of the entire population that were slaves. That means that they were non-Roman citizens, and they were not given certain benefits and rights that the Roman citizens offered. And so the, a slave, they may be attracted to another woman or to another man. They may want to join together in marriage, but they were legally not allowed to. So they would have this contubernium or this tent companionship. They would go to their slave owner and they would ask, will you allow us to marry? And if he gave permission, and oftentimes they would because marriage produced babies and babies meant more labor force. Oftentimes they would say yes, and then they would have an informal marriage ceremony. And then their different quarters would become one quarter and they would share a tent together. Here in the the South, during the times of the plantations and slavery in America, we had a very similar thing. Either slaves were granted permission by the owners to have marriage or they would do it secretly. And then what was the ceremony? They would jump the broom. And that was kind of to show the community that, hey, these two are now one flesh. We've been married together. That came really all the way from the roots of the Roman Empire. Now, the second form of marriage is known as usus, U-S-U-S, which means to use to use. And that is in America what we know as common law marriage. Has anybody heard of common law marriage? So in Texas, in Colorado, in South Carolina, Montana, Washington, D.C., and Iowa, you can go to those states and you can be married through common law, which simply means that if you're living with your partner, for a specific amount of time, the state says, okay, you are married. Even though you don't have a formal uh, certificate or you don't have, you know, an actual marriage ceremony. And every state varies. For example, Texas, there, there's no actual time limit. Colorado is no actual time limit. In the Roman Empire, it was for one year. You had to be living with your partner for one full year And you guys had to have both the desire to get married, and then you would be informally married. Now, it's called to use because when you play house and you don't have any skin in the game, all you're really doing is using the other person. That's all you're doing. And that's why it had the term usus, because they recognized that playing house and living with one another before marriage was simply using the other person for personal desires. Now you have the third, and that's coemptio and manum, which means marriage by contract. 
We know that as uh, arranged marriages. Let's say there was a guy and he was fugly. You looked at him and it was like, there's no way he's ever going to get married to a woman. And he sees a pretty young thing walk by and he's like, she's gorgeous, but I have no shot with her, but I do have some coins. So what he would do is he would go to the patriarch or to the father of the home and he would ask for her hand in marriage. And then there would be a contract, a legal contract that was drawn up in which there was a certain amount in which he was paid to deliver the hand of the bride. That seems foreign in the West, but it still happens to this very day. My grandparents were married via this way. They were both married at 13 years old, and they ended up being married for 70 plus years and had 16 children. I even have cousins who have grown up in this country who are sent both male and female back to the Middle East to have a marriage by contract to then come back to the United States. So these kind of things do still happen. And in Rome, it happened. It was contract-based. It was usually the woman that was given away, and she had absolutely no say in the matter at all, as long as the money was provided. And so all three of those were informal ways of being married in Rome. Then you had the fourth. And the last one was known as the confariatio. That literally translates to the wheat cake. And this was the only formal, legal, state-recognized marriage within the Roman Empire. Now, check this out. Have you ever wondered why we do marriage ceremony the way that we do? In the New Testament... There's nothing about the veil. There's nothing about flowers. There's nothing about the uh, being married there at the altar. There's nothing about a honeymoon. There's nothing about a ring. There's none of that. And it's a one-day ceremony. Nowhere in the New Testament does it talk about the length of a marriage ceremony. The Old Testament, it does. How long was a Jewish wedding? How long did it last? Do you know? One full week. The marriage ceremony actually lasted seven full days. Now, as Judeo-Christians, how come we didn't adopt what the Hebraic laws and Hebraic customs were? Why is it that we do marriage the exact same or in the manner in which we do? And the answer is because we got it from the Roman Empire. Let me tell you about the conferenatio. It would happen where it was a one-day event. And they would go to the altar of Jupiter, who is the god of the sky. And the, the god of the sky, Jupiter, would have priests. And the priests would stand there at the altar and the groom there on his side. And during the wedding ceremony, there would be, must have 10 witnesses available. That's why in our wedding ceremonies, there must always be witnesses there to testify that this marriage has taken place. Then the, the father would walk the bride down the aisle and hand the hand, hand her hand over to the groom. She would be wearing a dress and she would also have a mask or a veil on. The, the husband would then unveil her and the two would recite vows to one another. How they promise under the God Jupiter that they would be honored, honored and honorable to one another. Then after the vows were given, there would be an exchange of rings. You ever wondered why is it on your left hand and why is it on either the middle finger or the ring finger? Because the Romans knew 
through anatomy that there was a nerve that ran from the heart down your left arm to these two fingers. And so the ring being a symbol of eternity was placed on the nerve that went to the heart. It was a symbol that I will eternally with my whole heart love you. So they would exchange rings and they would put them on those hands. After the I do was said, they would go and they would go to the conferinatio or the cake. And they as a couple would cut the cake. The woman would take the flower wreath off of her head and throw it behind her. And then the two would go off and have their honeymoon because Jupiter is the God of the sky. The Roman Catholic Church took all of the pagan practice of marriage and instituted it within their ceremony. And this is why even in Christianity today, we still hold to the same pagan practices going all the way back to Rome. So you had those four forms of marriage. Only one was actually recognized, and then three were just kind of out there. Then on top of that, you had the idea of singleness. So you have marriage, and that's really confusing in the Roman Greco world. And then there's the idea of singleness. In the Roman Empire, you had this this thought that was kind of permeating, which would later rear its head as Gnosticism. And basically that meant physical, material, pleasurable things bad. Spiritual, immaterial things good. And so they began to diminish marriage and elevate singleness. And here was the thought. If you're single, you are really pious. You are really holy because you're not giving in to your own physical pleasures. Now, where in Christendom do we still see that today? The Roman Catholic priesthood and the monasteries, the monks and who else? The nuns. They are being forced to remain single for the sake of being pious and holier than thou. And so this was an incorrect view of singleness. Now you had another group of people, which is the general Greek population, and they really loved marriage. Anybody ever seen my big fat Greek wedding? Do you remember how they elevated marriage and diminished singleness? They were like, why are you not married? We are getting fat. You're getting ugly. What's going on? There's something wrong with you because they elevated marriage to a place it shouldn't be and they diminished singleness. There was another group in the Bible that does the same thing. Do you know what people group that is? What's another people group in the Bible that have elevated marriage to a very high level? Babies and marriage. The Jews, the Hebrews, the Jewish people elevate marriage very highly, even to this very day, and they diminish marriage. In the Talmud, which is Moses' law codified, they state seven reasons why a person will never get into the kingdom of God. The top two, number one, you are single. Number two, you are barren. Now, remember in the law of Moses, if you're a woman who's single and you have a baby, you have committed and violated the law. And what's the punishment? Death. So barrenness is tied directly to being married. The top two reasons that Jewish people say you will not enter God's kingdom, you're not married, and you don't have babies. That's why Sarai or Sarah, she was so distraught 
when she couldn't have a child. That's why Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, she was so distraught when she couldn't have children. It's the idea that she's not serving God and that she is actually accursed. So I want to read you a passage, Ruth chapter 1 and verse 11. And this just kind of puts into perspective this idea of being married and having children and how important it was within the Jewish way of thinking. So Ruth was, had a mother-in-law. Anybody remember her name? Naomi, which means beautiful. Naomi, and unfortunately, Naomi lost her husband and she lost her two sons. And so Ruth lost her husband and was a widow and another a woman named Orpah also lost her husband and she was a widow. So Ruth chapter one and verse 11. But Naomi said, return my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husband's? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you not therefore refrain from marrying? Notice the emphasis on getting married. No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now what Ruth really did there was saying, I am comfortable with being accursed from the culture and even from God himself because I'm comfortable with never remarrying again. Now, the Jews, were they allowed to marry outsiders or not allowed to marry outsiders? What was Ruth? She was a Moabite. She was a Gentile. She was one that a Jew would not marry. So she's basically saying, I am willing to be accursed. And that's how high the Jews elevated this area of marriage. So were there Jews in the Corinthian church? When Paul went to Corinth, where's the very first place he went? He didn't go to unemployment line. He didn't go to try to get an apartment. Where'd he go? Synagogue. And he preached at the synagogue and the leader of the synagogue gets saved. And Paul goes right next door and they plant the church. And then Apollos was a Jew, mighty in the Old Testament scriptures, who began to pastor when Paul left. So you have some Jews and Greeks who elevated marriage, diminished singleness. Then you had the Roman culture, which blended all these different forms of marriage. And they even redefined marriage. 13 of the 14 Roman Caesars of the empire were homosexuals or bisexual. And the Caesar reigning at the time Paul wrote this letter was Nero. He took a 14-year-old man named Sporus, cut 
castrated him, turned him into a woman, and actually married him. It wasn't until Constantine and the when the Roman uh, Catholic Church became the state religion that marriage became between male and female. What is God's definition of marriage? One male, not three males, not eight males, not six males, one male and one female, not eight ma- females, not 20 females. It's not uh, Adam and Steve, it's Adam and Eve. There's one male and one female, and what were they commanded to do? Even before that, what were they commanded to do? You are to leave father and mother and do what? Cling to your wife, become one, and then be fruitful and multiply. That was God's command, and that was God's definition of marriage. And what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. It was to, for to be life. The Romans were very big on divorce. Even the Jews were very big on divorce. Next week, we're going to look at marriage and divorce and the church. But just to lay the groundwork, these are all the different thoughts that are going on in the Corinthian church. So when Paul establishes what marriage is biblically, the Corinthians are like, what? That is not what we're accustomed to. That, that's so foreign than what we really understand. So Paul now begins to speak on singleness and begins to define it biblically and place it in its right place. Whether you're single or you're married, God still can bless you. There is not one greater than the other. And marriage is to be defined the right way. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 1 or sorry, seven and verse one. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And then in verse eight, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I am. So first thing we see is this, singleness and celibacy is what? Good. It's not a bad thing, contrary to what some of the Greeks and the Jews were saying within the church. It's not a bad thing. You're not cursed because you are a single male or you are single female. It is actually a good thing. Now, notice this, and this is germane to this idea of biblical singleness. Biblical singleness is not only being unmarried. Biblical singleness is being unmarried and not touching another person. Biblical singleness must be and only is unmarried and chastened or unmarried and celibate. If you're unmarried and you're, you're fooling around with another girl, the Bible defines you as a fornicator. That's your definition. You're not single, you're a fornicator. A single person biblically is one who is unmarried and they are chastened or holy. They're not polluted in the mind and they do not defile their bodies with another person. They cannot be separated. Today in our culture, a single person is I'm not in a relationship. 
but they can be all over the place. You know, I'm, I'm not married, therefore I'm single, but they're obviously promiscuous. That is not being biblically single. That is being in sin. And sin is not, there's no sin in being single. There is sin when you are single and you are not celibate. So Paul says it is good for you to be single. And the idea is absolutely drawn together, single and not fooling around. It is a good thing. Now turn to verse 32 through 35. There in the same chapter, chapter 7, and Paul gives us two reasons why it is good to be single. So for our single people here, and there's only a few, there's two really good reasons why it is actually good to be single and to praise the Lord while you are in this state. Verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. His interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, and she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, not how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. What are the two reasons Paul says being single is actually a great blessing? One, you have an opportunity to go gung-ho for Christ. You can completely devote and dedicate all your time to serving. You can be at Wednesday night's potluck. You can be at a Wednesday night Bible study. You can be there serving in the community on Friday. Saturday, you can go preach the gospel to the homeless. Every day, you have this opportunity where you can serve Christ. What Paul is saying is single people have a golden opportunity before them. They can literally go pedal to the metal for Jesus and bear much fruit in the kingdom. This is really a golden opportunity. So if you're single and you're not serving the Lord, you are not taking advantage of what God has presented before you. Notice, I want to turn back to Ruth. In Ruth chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there if you don't like. If you do, go for it. Ruth chapter 2 and verse 11. Now, Ruth goes back to Israel or Bethlehem, and she's now there with Naomi, her mother-in-law. And remember, she forsook her old way of life, and now she's made the God of Israel her God, and she goes out into the fields, and she's working hard. She's laboring. She's being loyal to her um, to her mother-in-law. And then on top of that, she's actually being faithful to the Lord. And she's keeping her head down, and she's not promoting herself. And word gets around about how her reputation. And it gets into the ears of a very wealthy man named, anybody know? Boaz. And her reputation and her name actually grazes his ears. And listen to the testimony that he says about Ruth. Ruth 
2 and verse 11. Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel. Look, in, look at this last clause. Under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And when you follow Ruth's life, she's devoting herself to the Lord. She's single. She's working hard. She's loyal. And she's devoted herself to the Lord. She's not out there trying to get a husband. She's not out there trying to put herself out there so hopefully someone takes her. She's completely content right where God has her. She's a widow and she's content in the Lord. And what does God do to bless Ruth? Boaz becomes her husband. And do you know who Ruth and Boaz what ends up happening with them? Who then, a couple generations down, becomes their great-grandson? King David. And Jesus comes from the line of Ruth and Boaz. The story is simply put this. Be content as a single person right where the Lord has you. And don't worry about anything else, and God will meet everyone of your needs, better than you can ever meet them on your own. Now, what's the second reason Paul says that it's really good and a blessing to be single and celibate? Not only because you can devote yourself entirely to the Lord, but there's a second reason. I'll read the first part to you. Uh, but I want you to be free from concern. Meaning when you get married, what happens? There's more things to be concerned about. It's not only you that you have to make happy. It's not only you that you get to please. When you're single, you make yourself happy. You can go to In-N-Out and throw down a burger and I'm, hey, I'm happy. You go home and turn on whatever channel you want and hey, I'm happy. My wife and I watch very different things, right? <laughs> There's just more uh, iron in the fire, if you will, that you have to concern yourself when you're married. There's more stressors. There's more concerns. And then when you have children, there's even more stressors and more concerns. Paul is saying, as a married person, you have to deal with more things. It's not just you. It's your partner. And it's the children. And it's the home. And all the responsibilities that that entails. There's just more to be concerned about. And so your attention then can be divided. It's not only ministry, but it's also ministry at home, making sure that I'm doing all the biblical mandates to have a flourishing household. So Paul is saying, unlike what the Jews would say within the church, that being single is actually a blessing that you're not cursed, that there's not something wrong with you. And that's why you can't find a mate. It's because where God has you at this point in time, God can use you. And so maximize your time as a single person, knowing that you have undivided attention to the Lord and you don't have to be concerned and worried about a spouse. So then Paul gives a warning. So if that's a pro for being single, what do you think the warning about being single is? Look at verse two. 
But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what's the con of being single? What's the con of being single? There's a, there's a, the negative of being single is what? There's a greater chance that you will stumble and be sexually immoral in a world with Pornhub, in a world with Tinder, in a world with social media, in a world where men are fast and women are loose, in a world where what one thing led to another is somehow a justification for your actions. It's very difficult to remain chaste. It's very difficult to remain holy and sexually pure. Remember, singleness biblically is being unmarried in what? Sexually pure, not touching a woman or not touching a man. The pitfall of being single is obvious. It's like a soldier walking on a field filled with landmines. One wrong step and you can blow up. One wrong step and you stumble. And so Paul gives a warning about singleness, which every single person knows. I got saved at 25. I didn't get married till I was 34. So I had nine years of singleness and I understand all the pitfalls. You know, I understood that the computer can be a very dangerous thing. So I was very conscious and had accountability there. I was very conscious not to be on social media. I didn't get on social media because I knew me and I know how easy it is to slide in somebody's DM. I, there's a lot of things that I did to prevent falling and stumbling into that sexual immorality. It's because there is great temptation there when you are single and you don't have a person to satisfy your needs. It's very difficult. So Paul's solution is what? If you can't have self-control and you burn with lust in your body, what is it better for you to do? Get married. It's best for you in that specific role and situation to simply get married. But here's my warning. And I've seen people do this and they have really rough marriages. They, they look at that verse or even without the Bible, they look at their potential spouse and they see, wow, I'm really sexually attracted to him or I'm really sexually attracted to her. Ooh, I'm going to marry them because of how they look. And that is a very, very dangerous pitfall. Paul is telling us in this text that marriage is for purity. When you're married to someone, it keeps you from having sexual immorality with other people. Marriage is for the sake of purity. That's one purpose of marriage, but that cannot be the only reason why you marry someone. There are four other purposes of marriage, and as singles, there's going to be a checklist right here for you. There's going to be a filter, and each one of these things has to be answered yes you have to check each one of these things off the box for you to move forward with your potential spouse. If one of these says no, or if multiple say no, then you move on, Christian. Single person, this little 
thing up here will save you a whole lot of money, a whole lot of pain, and a whole lot of tears and sorrow if you check yes to each one of these boxes. If you check no, you are going to be in a really rough position. So we've seen in our text, marriage is for purity. If you can't withhold yourself from sexual acts, then it's best to get married. But there's more pieces to this pie. Number two, marriage is for companionship. One purpose of marriage is for the sake of companionship. So I ask myself, am I sexually attracted to this person? If the answer is yes, I'm more likely going to be pure within my marriage. Number two, do our personalities mesh? Are they my helpmate? Are they someone who's my BFF? Can I do life with them? Am I, are they my partner in crime? Are we the present day Bonnie and Clyde? Is that something that works and clicks for us? Because one purpose of marriage is companionship. In Genesis chapter two and verse 20, the Bible says, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, which means man, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Now get this scenario. He is in the perfect world. He is in the perfect world. There's no mosquitoes sucking his blood. There's no thorn and thistles cutting his hands. He is in literally heaven on earth. And he has a relationship with his creator. Him and God walk together in the cool of the day. He even has responsibilities. So he's not just sitting around being bored. He has responsibilities and he's laboring and working for God, naming all these animals. He's on heaven on earth. He's experiencing it. And yet he still lacks. And so what does God do? Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe man because she was taken out of man for this reason. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage is for purity. So I have to ask myself, am I sexually attracted to this person? Marriage is also for companionship. So as a single person, I have to ask, can I get along with them? Are they, do they have the potential to be my best friend? The third thing is procreation. Marriage is for the purpose of procreating. So when you're dating someone, you have to ask, and it's germane to the marriage itself, are you willing to have kids? Not able. Maybe some men are infertile and they don't know. Some women are barren and they don't know it's out of their control. But are they willing? Because if they're willing, God may be there and God can do the miraculous. I We've had even a couple here who were not able to get pregnant and they now have a, a son. God does miracles specifically through this area of giving offspring. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, 
God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that was God's command to the very first married couple. So ask yourself when you're dating someone and you you believe that you can take it to that next level, are you willing to have children? Do you want a family? Is that something that you desire? If they say yes, you have the green light and you can move on to the next thing. The fourth purpose of marriage is illustration. You have procreation and then illustration. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The purpose of marriage is is also an illustration of Christ's relationship with his church and specifically with you. It's a picture of a godly union. So what is a question we need to ask or know about our potential spouse? Are you a Christian? How can a woman ever submit to her husband as unto the Lord if she doesn't believe in the Lord? How can a a man love his wife, cherish his wife, nourish his wife, lead his wife, and give himself up as Christ did the church if he doesn't believe in Christ or his church? If you are not marrying someone who has the same belief systems as you, you might as well chuck your marriage down, down the toilet. It's going to be wrought with friction. It may work, it may last, but it will not be God's best for you. Do not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. They will never love you and cherish you and serve you as Christ does his church if they don't believe in the Lord of the church. And I see many people, even in the church, that say, oh, but I really like him, but he's not a believer. Oh, I, I really love, love her, but she's not a believer. You are going to cause yourself a great amount of pain and sorrow if you do not marry someone who is equally yoked to you. And then even they can say they're a Christian. They can say, well, I believe. How many in America, it seems like everybody believes in Jesus. They At least they say that, and then you look at their actions, and it's completely different. And if you are not equally yoked, it's going to cause friction. For example, you see a lot, and this happens primarily with women. Women are on fire for Christ, and they're attending the church. And that's why, statistically, there are more women in church than there are men in church, because they tend to be more drawn to spiritual things. And so the women are there, and they're active in the church, and so they're there on Monday potluck. They're there Wednesday night Bible study. They're there serving on Friday evenings. And the man's at home, and he's like, huh, I didn't get a meal Monday. And I had to go out for a burger Wednesday. And oh, Friday, you know, the, the pots are cold and the house is dark. You know, just like, um, what is the, the singer? Oh, for you, it doesn't matter. Anyway, 
darn it, it doesn't matter. And so anyway, that causes friction. And because he may have said, well, I'm a believer and he really isn't, or he's super lukewarm. And there's this unequally yokeness. And it also happens the other way where men are on fire. They want to take leadership positions in the church. However, their wife is acting as an anchor, holding them back. It is absolutely vital that you find someone who's a Christian and who is on the same wavelength as you. Because marriage, the purpose of it is an illustration of Christ and his church. And if you have one who doesn't believe in Christ, you throw the whole illustration away. Now here's the the fifth one. Marriage and the purpose of marriage is a contribution. It's for purity. It's for companionship. It's for number three, procreation. It's for four, an illustration. And the last one, it's a contribution. What does that mean? Check it out in verse um, 26 through 33, Ephesians chapter five. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Let me ask you a question. Whose teeth did you brush this morning? My teeth. Whose hair did you brush this morning? When you showered, whose body did you wash? Because you love your body. So you cherish it and you nurture it. When you're married, two flesh become what? One, so you are to cherish and nourish your wife in the same way you love yourself. And whether you believe it or you don't believe it, everybody loves themselves. We are very much self-consumed with ourselves. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband." Notice the contribution within the marriage. There are specific gender roles and there are specific requirements within the home. The man is to nourish, to cherish, to lead, to provide, and to protect. Those are his roles. The woman is to respect, submit, and make sure that the home is running well, that the children are doing well, that the children are disciplined. All of these things... uh, add to the contribution that both men and women bring to the value of the home. Now, is it wrong for a woman to work? No, not necessarily. With these things called smartphones and the computer, she can have a multi-million dollar enterprise from her, the, under her, the roof of her own home. But it is wrong when that enterprise then becomes the major in her life and these other areas begin to fall by the wayside. Is it wrong for a man to take care of the home? Not necessarily. 
but it is wrong if he takes care of the home at the expense of his leadership and his provision and his protection for the home. So when you come to your spouse or your potential spouse, are you willing and understanding of the biblical model within the home, how each male and female husband and wife contribute to the family? If she says no, or he says, no way, I want to be a deadbeat and I just want to stay at the, on my couch and I'm going to let my wife handle everything, then it's probably best that you move on. And I'm just telling you this singles for your own, for your future self, because you will do major damage if all of these things are not checked off the list. Because only when you do all of these things is the purpose of marriage actually maximized here on earth. So Paul is saying celibacy and singleness is a good thing. It gives you more opportunity and less drama and stress, but it has its pitfalls. And so be very careful of sexual temptations and also be careful of not just marrying the first person that gives you any sort of attention because you're sexually drawn to them. There are other reasons why you are to get married. And those were right there on the list. Now Paul in verses three through six deals with married people. And he says celibacy is good for single people, but celibacy is horrible for married people. Do not be celibate. Do not stop having sexual relations with your wife when you are married. That is an absolute recipe for disaster. And so going back to the church, this Gnostic way of thinking, well, I'm holier if I don't have any kind of physical, pleasurable interaction. And so people, men in the church who were former pagans got saved and then they began to believe that false teaching. And so they began to not touch their wives. Maybe, I don't know, that was the reason why that son took his father's wife. Don't know, speculation. But what ended up happening was men were saying, no, 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 I want to dedicate myself completely to God. Therefore, I'm going to forsake myself from having intimate sexual pleasures with my wife. Paul says, you are doing an incorrect thing. Look at verses three through six. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. So Paul says merit or celibacy within marriage is absolutely wrong. And he gives us a few reasons. Reason number one is in verse three. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The Greek word duty means and to pay a financial obligation or to have a written requirement. So if you're in a union, what are you required to do in a union? You have a financial obligation to pay that union. When you're in the marriage union, 
When you're in a union of marriage, you have a sexual obligation to pay to your husband or to your wife. It's an actual obligation to satisfy and meet the needs of your spouse. So one, there's an obligation by God or to God to please your partner. Here's the second reason Paul gives. Your body is not your own. Look at verse four. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The second reason celibacy is terrible for marriage is because you're not recognizing that this body belongs to my wife and her body belongs to me. Now, if you go back to last week in chapter six, verse 19 and 20. Every Christian, their body belongs to God. And when you get married, that body is then shared with God and your spouse. In verse 19, it says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, that idea of redemption. You were purchased off the slave market. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So who does your body belong to as a married person? Number one, God. And then when you go into that union of marriage, you have an obligation to pay your dues to your spouse in a sexual way. Here's the third reason why merit or celibacy is absolutely wrong. It's because sex is pleasurable. Sex is pleasurable. Therefore, please your spouse. God could have made sex very excruciating. He could have made it hurt so much that nobody wanted to do it. But God, when he designed people for the purpose of procreation, made it pleasurable so that in the union of marriage, you can be blessed. In Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15, it says, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Now, Solomon is not talking about a physical well and physical water. The well is his wife. And the wadi, the water is her body. Drink from your own wife's body. Should your springs be dispersed abroad? Should you take your own sexual actions and take them to other women? Absolutely not. Streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind in a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always by her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Anybody ever read Songs of Solomon? That's basically an erotica book within the Bible. And it's talking about a married man and woman enjoying sexual intercourse and foreplay. God says marriage or celibacy is so wrong in marriage because your body is not your own. 
Number two, you have a duty you must fulfill to your partner. Number three, sex is pleasurable, so enjoy it with your spouse. And what's the fourth reason? It's right there in verse five. What's the fourth reason why you should not withhold sex from your spouse? Because who will tempt you? Satan will tempt you. Here's the rule, and I know we know it to be true. If, if someone is not pleased by their spouse, they will look somewhere else. Do we know that to be true or not? If, she, if he's not flattering her and he doesn't have sex with her and he's not paying her any uh, light of day, the person at the gym or her job or someone else will come along and begin to satisfy those needs. If she's not putting out in the marriage and he's really horny and he just cannot seem to satisfy himself within the marriage unit, he's going to go to his secretary or he's going to go online and see if he can satisfy his needs elsewhere. What Satan does is he begins to tempt people to break that union of marriage because what God has joined together, let no one tear apart. Yet Satan does his best to try to destroy the marriage unit. Verse five, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control. But I say this by way of concession and not by command. What he's saying is during a time of prayer and fasting, it's acceptable to, to not have sexual relations with your wife. However, that's not a command. If you, if you want to please your wife during those times, you can. But there is a concession where you can have a time where it's mutually agreed upon to separate and be completely set apart for the Lord. And notice what he says here, because of your lack of self-control. Remember in verse nine, it says, if you do not have self-control, what do you do? get married. So notice this. People who are married are testifying, I do not have self-control over my own sexual desires. When you get married, that does not change. That self-control doesn't just magically appear. That self-control or lack thereof for sexual promiscuity is always there. And marriage is as a safeguard or pure purifying effect to keep you away from, from going about and, and acting on your lack of self-control. And so your flesh is already weak. Satan is already there doing the whisperings and trying to set things up and put traps in your path. And what is the recourse to that? What is our way to fight back? Be intimate with your partner and don't let those sexual desires build up so much that you have to release them in an ungodly way. So Paul says, your body's not your own. You have a duty to your wife. Sex is pleasurable, so go ahead and do it. And fourthly, Satan is always there tempting you. And we're just gonna close with this last point really quickly. Uh, verse seven, celibacy is a gift. Yet I wish that all men were even as myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner, which is being single and not ha or and having self-control over his body, and others another in another way. 
So God gifts people in a, a, a myriad of ways, and one gift is for the sake of singleness. If you don't have that gift, then you go before God and you start to do those checklists. And one, one thing that you can do is this. One, be content. Be content. First Timothy 6, 6 says, godliness with contentment is great what? Gain, gain, meaning put God first and be content right where you are in life and there will be great gain to you. And here's the second thing for singles who don't have the gift of singleness, but they find themselves unmarried. Here's the second thing you can do. Uh, Psalm 119 and verse nine. How can a young man cleanse his ways? by taking heed to the word of God. That's the key to singleness biblically if you don't have the gift of singleness and you're waiting for the Lord to bring your partner. One, be content and godly right where you're at. And number two, take heed to God's word. That means read it, understand it, and apply it to your life. And that's how a young man can cleanse his ways. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of the mind. That's how single people can remain single and holy, by getting this book into your brain and doing it. And being content right where God has you, knowing that singleness is a blessing and you can use this time to honor the Lord. All right, with that, we'll pray and next week we'll get into divorce. God, we just thank you for your your word. We thank you, God, for how rich it is. We thank you, God, how practical it is. It literally touches every area and aspect of our lives. And so, God, we are grateful and Lord, we are thankful for what you've given us. We are thankful, Lord, for what you've done for us. And God, if we are single and we don't have the gift, I just pray over our people. I pray for those even who aren't here today to listen to this message, that they would devote themselves to service to you while they have the time and that they would be thankful and content as being single, even if the desires of their heart is to get married. But Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, put God first, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That is a great promise by God to us. And so if you're desiring a wife or a husband, Put the Lord first, be content, take heed to the word of God. Look at a spouse and answer yes to, are you sexually attracted? Or is your personalities, do they mesh well? Are you both on board to having a family and raising children? Are you both Christian and do you submit to the biblical mandate of men and women, husband and wife within the home. And if all those answers are yes, you can proceed cautiously and prayerfully with that person. And so, Lord, we pray for our married people. 
We pray for those who don't find enjoyment in their spouse any longer. The candle has kind, kind of gone out. The lights are off. The jello's jiggling. Nobody's home. And so, God, I just pray for them that they would have a renewed passion within their marriage, that they would find their spouse attractive again in their personality, in their spiritual walk, in their physical body, and that the wife would respect and submit to her man, and the man would therefore submit to Christ in loving her, his wife as Christ loved the church. Lord, we need more holy singles and we need more on-fire couples so that the church of Christ can shine our light bright into a darkened world. Lord, we thank you, and we just pray for temptations to be cast down and for your glorification in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.